All right, how many of you are ready for the word of the Lord today? Then turn in your Bibles with me to a passage in the Old Testament. And 1 Kings is where we're going to go. 1 Kings chapter 21. And there's an individual here that I want us to look at for just a few minutes. It is always interesting to me how we tend to have this thing called association. We associate certain people with certain events or we associate certain names that we know with things that have taken place typically through history. If I were to mention some names to you this morning, you would know instantly what that person is associated with, whether it was a good thing or or a bad thing. It's this thing called association, just the way we connect names with people, with various events. If I were to mention these names, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, George Harrison, and John Lennon, I bet most of you know that I'm talking about, those of you under 20, Beatles is not just a bug. It was a group that some of us knew a little bit about, <clears throat> unless you went to church and then you weren't supposed to know about them, but we knew about them anyway. <laughs> if we danced, we danced where nobody saw us, you know, we did it privately, so that's the way that worked out. If I mentioned the name Dr. Martin Luther King, you would know I was talking about civil rights. If I mentioned Nixon, I bet the first thing that comes to your mind is, hey, you're good. If I mentioned Michael Jordan, you would think... Who said money? Somebody said money. (laughs) You would think basketball. But there is a name that had an association in the Old Testament that I want to bring to you this morning. I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to look at it with a little more depth as we kind of tear it apart piece by piece. Now, I grew up in church, as many of you did, listening to sermons and great preachers you know, attending what I'm sure was thousands of church services and prayer meetings and sleeping on the front row of church. How many of you remember those days when you were a kid, if you were raised in church? I know what it is to be stomped on by high heels in the altar. Um, Some of you will remember those days. I don't know how many of you do. And I grew up in the 60s and heard so many sermons on the rapture of the church, which I still believe is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. And I heard powerful, dramatic, very impacting, impactful sermons on the rapture of the church. And I would hear it so often that it had huge impact on me. And I bet some of you had this experience like I had as a child. I would come home from school and I couldn't find anybody home. (laughs) And I would call out for my mom. She wasn't there call out for my dad, and there was, there was no answer, and I started to panic. Anybody with me? Anybody had that experience? I started to panic, and then my sister would walk in the room, but I knew she wasn't going to heaven, so that didn't help me at all. <laughs> we're very close today, but in those days, we were typical brother and sister. Hello. So I would do what I bet you did. I would get on the phone, and I would start calling the saints of the church, Someone that I knew was going to heaven. I remember specifically Sister Bixler was one of them. Sister Granny Jackson. I can almost give you her phone number. And and I was just hoping. All I needed was for one of them to answer the phone. And I confess to you that sometimes all they did was say hello and I hung right up. As long as they answered, I knew they were still here and I had not been left behind. Lots of sermons on the rapture of the church. And there was, there was another topic that got my attention as a kid. I heard lots of, uh, of sermons about a certain person from the Old Testament who was the subject of many negative sermons. And this person was a woman. 
And every woman in the church knew that she was not to be like Jezebel. You're doing good today. You got an A so far. And if you wore too much makeup, if you had nice shoes, if you had a pretty fancy nice dress on, if you looked too good, you knew you were going straight. (laughs) And so ladies, though I'm sorry to bring up her name this morning. It's not Jezebel that we're talking about so much, but we're going to talk about her husband that I want to mention to you today. So ladies, you can take a deep breath and relax because this morning we're not going to preach on the spirit of Jezebel and all the ladies said, we'll do that next week. No, 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 no. (laughs) If you're at 1 Kings chapter 21, find verse 25 with me. And let's kind of stay parked there. Keep that open if you will. I'm going to jump around a bit, so just keep it handy. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. How would you like to have your name associated with that? What if that's what you were known for? That's what people, when they heard your name, that's what they thought of you. When when your name was mentioned, it was the first thing that came to their mind is no one else so completely sold himself out to what was evil in the Lord's sight as you, just like Nixon and Watergate and, and Michael Jordan and basketball. Ahab's reputation and what he was known for was that nobody so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. No one was like him. Now, there are others who are mentioned in Scripture that that same phrase was mentioned, but for good things. For example, it was said of Job, no one was like him in Job chapter 1. It was said of Hezekiah for the way he trusted God that no one was like him. But when it comes to Ahab's name, the Bible says there was no one like him that so completely sold himself to do wicked things. And then we read the text, and it kind of takes your breath away when you find out what he actually did. Because the Bible says, again at verse 25, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did, and ladies, I'm sorry I have to say her name, under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. This was the dynamic duo of doing evil. This was the couple that would begin to have this stigma attached to their name. The Bible says in verse 26 and 27 that he acted very abominably, saying this in verse 26, his worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Verse 27 says this, and this is one of those I want you to kind of freeze frame for just a second in your mind. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, we might say sackcloth and ashes, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. When he heard what message? We're going to get to that in a second. You're going you're to just freeze that one in place for, for a bit. This whole chapter, chapter 21, starts off with this story that I'm going to try to just sum up for you instead of reading it all, and then we're going to get to the point of the message this morning. Chapter 21 starts off with Ahab the king wanting something that someone else has. A man 
has land that is right next to the king's palace, King Ahab's palace, and the king wants it. So look at your Bible and just follow along with me starting now at verse 1 of chapter 21. Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I'll just give you the cash for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So let's understand here for a second exactly what's happened so far. The king has been told no. The king has been told no. This is going to sting just a little bit, okay? So hang on. One of the best ways to discover how mature you are is to evaluate how you react when you are told no. You still love me? You won't when I'm done. (laughs) One of the best ways to find out how you really are in your walk with the Lord Where you are spiritually is when someone has to tell you no. Especially for those of you who are used to being in a position of power or leadership. Look what happens to you and look what happens in you when you have someone say no to you when you are used to hearing yes. It's sad to see that there are people who have made it all the way to adulthood and very few times have been told no. They've heard yes all of their life. They were, um, I'm trying to think of a better word than uh, coddled or, um, or um, babied by their, by their parents, by whomever, and they were never told no. Parents, don't ever be afraid to tell your child no. Besides the fact that it's probably a dangerous or unhealthy thing for them to do, they need to learn to understand what it is to hear the word no. And to know how to process that and understand that not all things are good for them. So here we have a king. And he has been told no. It's it's, it's the same principle like you have sometimes with servants. I have people come to me from time to time and and say this. They say, oh, pastor, I I just want to serve. I just want to serve. I really, I have a servant's heart. And I just want to serve. I'll do anything. I'll clean toilets. I'll mow the grass. I'll, I'll wash the windows. And that's wonderful to say that you're willing to do that, but I like what I heard recently when I heard someone say, you want to know how to know if you really have a servant's heart? There's a way to know. There's a test for that. It's by how you act when you're treated like one. You're going to let that soak just for a second. I'm not sure you heard me. Do you want to know if you have a servant's heart? You will know that by the way you act and the way you respond when you are actually treated like one. That's how you'll know. So here's what happened between the simple vineyard owner named Naboth and the king named Ahab, who is not just a king, but one of the most wicked kings according to the Bible. So Naboth has something that Ahab wanted but couldn't have, and Naboth tells him no. 
Now, this vineyard that Naboth had was next to the palace, and it would have been a great place for a vegetable garden for the king. I'm sure he could just visualize all the fresh tomatoes and the corn on the cob and the, and the squash and whatever else you grow in a vegetable garden. I'm sure he had it all laid out in his mind. But when the king approaches Naboth with money or a better vineyard in exchange, Naboth says no to the king, and Naboth turns down the king's offer. So let's go ahead in the text, and let's see how the king responds. Look at verse 4. I'm feeling the love in the room this morning, I tell you. Verse 4. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall, and he refused to eat. Did you read the same text I just read? This is the king of the nation acting like a fill in your own blank. And now he's got to tell mommy, or really his wife, what happened. Verse 5. What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? Let's go to verse 6. I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused. This is the king we're talking about. This is the man in charge of a nation who won't eat his food because he's so upset, refusing to eat and acting like a little child. I I suppose we all respond differently when we're upset. I was reading this and thinking, you know, when I'm upset... I don't say, I'm not going to eat. When I'm upset, I say, where's a bag of potato chips? I'm depressed. Where's the bluebell ice cream? Anybody with me? Unfortunately, that's very true. Talk to me, brother. Come on. All of a sudden, Look what Jezebel, his wife, begins to do because this is a lady with a plan. She's got a scheme. And she said this to her husband, the king, in verse 7. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I will get you Naboth's vineyard. And from this point on, she comes up with this diabolical plan. And here's what happens. She invites Naboth the vineyard owner, to a state dinner to make him think he is someone special. She sets him right across from two guys from the mafia. It's worded a little different than the King James. Who will accuse him of blasphemy and treason. They will drag him from the table and outside the town where they will stone him with stones for treason against the king before he can even open his mouth and enjoy a bite of food. Now, I'm pretty sure... That when the invitation came in the mail to Naboth to come to the state dinner, he had no idea that he was being summoned to his own death. He probably, I can see him putting on his best suit, not even thinking that this would be the last time he would ever get dressed. He's expecting to eat the finest meal of his life and had no idea he was about to be sucker punched and would never return home. And on top of that, his wife and family would be kicked out of the family inheritance and a murderer would take over the vineyard. And plow it up and turn it into his garden. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, in my book, that's wicked. That's extremely wicked. And Ahab is now pretending that he knows nothing about all of this. But what's amazing to me here in this story is this. God doesn't leave anything unpunished. 
Hello. Now, God's clock may not run the way you want it to. It may not turn the way you think it ought to turn. It may not be fast enough for you. How many of you know that we carry a watch with minutes and seconds? God carries a calendar with months and years on it. But always remember this. When anything like this is done, an Elijah will eventually show up in your garden. Hear me this morning, friends. I don't care what you think you've got hidden from God and everybody else around you. One of these days, an Elijah is going to show up in your garden. Take that word of comfort this morning. And that's exactly what happens here. God speaks to Elijah and he says, Elijah, there's a garden here that Ahab killed someone for. You need to go there and pronounce judgment upon him. This is the same kind of thing that Jesus said when he said, whatever is done in secret will one day be brought to the rooftop. Remember this, church, everything will eventually get to the rooftop. We don't know when, but it eventually does. It is amazing to see how God can give exposure to that which you thought was done in secret and bring it to the rooftop. Let me show you what happened on the rooftop of this story when Elijah shows up. Look at verse 17. Stay with me here. But the Lord said to Elijah, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they licked the blood of Naboth. So, my enemy... You have found me, Ahab said to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered. I have have come because you sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Baasha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. Now, when you came to church this morning, you had no idea I was going to give you such encouraging scriptures, did you? So this is the rooftop conversation where Elijah is telling Ahab, you'll be eaten by birds and dogs. There'll be no hospice for you, no families sitting around you singing the songs of Zion. No, 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 no. For you, animals are going to eat you, and this will be a despicable death because of what you have done. So let me recap it quickly. Here's what we have. The king wants the property. He can't get it. He acts like a baby. He tells his wicked wife Jezebel. Jezebel sets up this elaborate plan, kills an innocent man. Ahab builds his garden, and the prophet shows up and says, pack it up, because birds and dogs are going to eat you. Not the most encouraging passage. So where is God in all of this? And I'm sure you're wondering, Dan, where are you going with this? You trying to scare everybody this morning? You got dogs waiting outside for us when we leave here today? Or mean birds? Speaking of mean birds, I got to tell you, it was just a few months ago, right over here in this row where the pastors park, there's a tree. 
and we had a bird, a demonic bird. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. A demonic bird that was in that tree over there, and I, it, it uh, uh, she had um, a nest, I'm pretty sure. I was trying to get out saying that, but I wanted you to know there's a reason why she was so protective. She was extremely aggressive. And so anytime that any of the pastors would try to park over there, she would squawk loudly. And then if she thought you were anywhere getting close to her nest, she came down and swooped. Am I telling the truth, Todd? She came down and swooped at us. It was easy to find Josh's head because his is the shiniest. No, I'm telling you the truth. She would come down and peck at you or peck on your shoulder or whatever. And it was really funny to watch grown men, Todd, Brent, Josh, Shaler, you know, Ron, and me too. You, you, know, you had to get your courage up to walk out of the church. And literally, here's the way we would do it. We would get our keys together and try to unlock your you know, remote thing, unlock your door. And okay, ready? Three, two, one. And you try to get to your car. Am I telling the truth? Finally, someone moved the nest successfully, and she's no longer there. Praise God. Glad she's not there. So there's no birds or dogs outside. But think how wicked this couple was. There was no one like Ahab who so completely sold himself to what was evil. And then something happens in verse 27. Watch this, 27. But when Ahab heard this message... He tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message came from the Lord to Elijah. And here's the verse, church, that should stop us all today, dead in our tracks. Verse 29, the Lord says, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. How do you stop a plan like what we've just read about with birds and dogs and all that utter violence taking place? In this last verse, we see exactly how to stop it. It all stopped when a man humbled himself. Did you hear me? The plan that was God's plan for utter destruction for what he had done came to a grinding halt when that man humbled himself. Think of it. Any man or woman in this place, in this room this morning, can get God's attention when you humble yourself before God. No matter how wicked you have been, no matter what you have done, Ahab signed off on a murder of a corrupt regime no matter what has happened in the present and in the past, listen to the good news today, church. The good news is this. Humble yourself and, be, and God will begin to change everything for you from that point forward. Blessed be the Lord. It's almost as if it's God's soft spot. It's where you will, you will get his attention. It's where you will get God's heart. When a man or a woman humbles themselves before God, he responds immediately. So what is humility? What is it that gets the heart of God? What is it that stops God? What is it that when God has a whole prophetic agenda through Elijah and he, he stops it, he changed it and he says, now that's not going to happen to Ahab because he humbled himself. What is it? 
Because whatever it is, I want some of that. Are you with me this morning? How does this happen? What is this humility? The Hebrew language is very picturesque. Greek uh, tends to be very wordy. I know there's like at least four words for love and nine words for sin in the Greek. The Hebrew language is very picturesque. But even a quick look at Hebrew dictionaries will give you these picturesque terms for humility. And, I, and here's one of them I want, to, I want to share with you this morning. The word humility to a Jewish mind meant to pack up your bags, to take everything, to pack up all the stuff and take it out of the land, to get rid of it. It means this, and hear me carefully, to pack all your belongings and say, no more, I don't need this stuff anymore, this is not what I need. What a picture this is. So I'm looking at this and wondering, what does this mean to me? What does it mean to Bethesda? And I sense the Lord saying it means this. It means you being overwhelmed with the credentials of God more than your own credentials. It means you being overwhelmed more with the credentials of God than your own credentials. It's you packing up everything and saying, you know what, all this stuff that I've acquired, whatever it is, it's not what makes me important. What makes you important, church, is that God loves you enough that he would send his son to die for you. What makes you important is that God loves you for who you are. It's not the degree you have, and I'm all for education. We have three educational branches on this campus. It's not your degrees. It's not the people that you know. It's not because you go to this church or that church. Your importance and your value has nothing to do with what you have studied, the degrees you've attained. It's because there is a God in heaven that loves you. That's it. That's where your value comes from. So therefore, it says this to us. Pack everything up. Pack up your position. Pack up your pride. Pack up your degrees. Pack up your salary. Pack up your tenure. Pack up your structure. Pack everything up and say, you know what, God? This is not what makes me important. It's you that makes me important. You're the one I want. You can't come to an altar with all your stuff and say, God, you must be happy that I'm getting saved today. Doesn't happen that way. Because here's the truth. God doesn't need you. And there's no point in Scripture where you can find out that God made a decision that he needed you. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need who you are or what he can give you. God doesn't need that. Listen to me. God is God without you. You don't make him any better by coming to him. It is God's mercy that accepts us. So listen to me, CEO, professor, doctor, lawyer. It would be nice for you to get saved, but you don't make God any better by coming to him. He's the one who knows everything. He's the one we want and need. It's packing it all up. It's saying, God, we don't even want our own credentials. It doesn't matter the places we've been, the people we know, the awards that we've won, or the accomplishments of any kind. You know, for 33 years, I was the music pastor in this house. And in all those years, we had lots of incredible, talented people, incredibly talented people come through the place. 
Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there were a few of them that didn't walk in the doors with perfect motives. Nervous laughter, nervous laughter, nervous laughter. There were some who had less than pure motives when they walked in the place. May have been a great singer, may have been a great musician, whatever it was. But we had a few of those. There was a lady who was a singer, fine singer, nice lady. She made an appointment with me and said, I need to bring my husband. I said, okay. And so they made an appointment. She was a very gregarious gal. She, was, she could talk freely you know, any other time. She walks in my office that day. She can't say a word. She's been crying. She's got Kleenex in each hand. And she's sobbing. And her husband walks in, her, in with her, and he's got a big box. And I'm thinking, what is in the box? And he's got a piece of paper. I could tell there was a little tension when they walked in. It was not time to make jokes. And so I welcomed them into my office. They sat down. I'm still thinking, what is in that box? And he says, here's the first thing he said, stop. Don't say a word. I said, okay. I don't want you to say anything until I've read this whole thing that I've written out here. Okay. He says, I've been told you'll talk me under the table. I don't want you to say one word. Just listen to everything I've got to say. Okay. You got it. He went on to extol her virtues telling me about all the awards that she had won. They were nice, wonderful in this area. All the things that she had done, all the things that she had accomplished, and, and other singers that were also in this church that she had beat out in competitions. And then the moment came when he took the lid off the box, and he had all of her trophies in that box. And one by one, he plopped all of her trophies on my desk. You don't think I'm telling you the truth. I am telling you the truth. And after I got over the shock of it all, here's what I said, hopefully in a more loving way than I'm going to tell you. Pack it all up. It's not needed here. You don't need that here. Pack it all up. Listen, church, if you start depending upon your own resume and your own bio of who you are and what you've done, then you've just made what you've done more important than what Jesus has done. And the thing that Jesus has done by dying for our sins is what makes you valuable, makes me valuable. That's the thing, that God loves us so much that he would send his only son to die for us. He would die for you whether you have a degree or don't have a degree. It doesn't matter to God. Your accomplishments or lack thereof is not what drove him to the cross because your value comes from him and not from you. And so Ahab the king begins at this point to humble himself. And then at that point, everything changes for this man. It's humility that changes everything. You know that 1 Peter chapter 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Think of the humility of the apostle Paul. And he says in 1 Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, I'm the least of all the saints. And the only time that he says I'm the best the only time he says, I'm in the front of the line, I'm the foremost, was in 1 Timothy 1 where he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. Think of that. The least of the apostles, the least of the saints, but the foremost of sinners. He moves from apostles to saints to sinners, and the only time he's at the top of the list is on the list of sinners. What God is wanting from us is a humility, church, a willingness that we can begin to change only because we have surrendered to him. There is such danger in pride. There's such danger and pride that we would 
want to open up the box and plop our trophies out for all to see. And I think of, I think of myself, how often we want to show our credentials. And I think of Ahab, the king, had sold himself what was evil and sold himself to do what was wicked. He kills a man and then, and then in one moment he humbles himself and gets the heart of God and everything is changed from that point forward. Everything changes in that moment because of humility. Let me close with two thoughts and I'll be through in just a few minutes if you'll hold steady. Number one, what I began to realize with this man Ahab was this. No one is beyond God's reach. Some of you ought to say, thank God. No one is beyond God's reach. No one is out of reach for God. Think of the worst person you know. And remember, everybody is on God's radar to be saved. Listen to what it says about Ahab. No one like him, Ahab, and all of his evil. But also think about this verse. There is no one like our God. So we have no one did evil like Ahab, and we have there is no one like our God. But always remember this. God always wins. God always wins. Some of you have a son or a daughter, a relative, a boss, or a workmate. It has been nothing but trouble and struggle since the day you met them, since the day you had them. It's been trouble every step of the way. And you've been at the point of wanting to almost give up in relationship. Just remember this. No one is beyond the reach of Almighty God, and God will always win. Blessed be the Lord. There's a verse in Mark chapter 10 that is so critical in understanding this idea that God always wins. I'll just go there quickly. I'm sure they'll put it on the screen. It's a verse that we've all quoted many times, but I had a different insight to it, into its context this week. Mark chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God, because everything is possible with God. You remember that verse? Say it with me. Everything is possible. Oh, come on. Say it better than that. Everything. And here's what I want us to see specifically about this verse. You know what's incredible about this? Do you know what Jesus was doing right here in this particular place? He was answering a question. If you look at the verse before, it's basically saying this. The disciples are saying, who can be saved? Who can be saved? This was right after Jesus had just dealt with the rich young ruler. You remember, this was the young guy that had it all together. He, he, he had done it all right, and he was proud of it. He hadn't committed murder. He hadn't committed adultery. He'd never stolen from anybody. He wasn't a liar. He never cheated anyone, and he was nice to his mom and dad. He'd kept all the rules, and the Scripture says that Jesus felt genuine love for him. He had done everything right. He had it all together, but he was proud of it, very proud of it. And guess what? When you come to Jesus you got to pack all that up. you got to pack up even all the good things you've done. When you come to Jesus, you got to pack it all up. I don't care how good you've been or how long you've been a good boy or a good girl, how many church services you've been to, how many Bible studies you have led. All you've got to bring to Jesus is your wicked heart. And yes, I'm talking to you, Miss Church Lady. Brother church man, so the question posed by the disciples here in Mark 10 is this. They're saying, then who can be saved? 
Jesus answers by saying, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Does that mean Mr. or Miss Do-Good can be saved? Yes, when they pack everything up. When they get real about who they are. When they understand that nothing is hidden from God. And they're ready to pack up all their accomplishments and humble themselves before a mighty God. And realize that they've got nothing to bring. All their goodness, all of their good things that they've accomplished. Wonderful. That's nice for them. But when you come to God, you come empty-handed. Does that mean even King Ahab can be saved, of whom it was said that no one completely sold himself to that which was evil as he did? Can he be saved? The good news is this. No one is off of God's radar. No one is off of God's radar. I heard recently of a pastor friend of mine who was reading a letter he had received to his, he was reading this letter to his staff in a prayer meeting. He was reading this letter without telling them who had written the letter. And the person writing the letter says, and pastor, I've been praying for you and your family. I've been leading Bible studies and preaching and, and leading a church while here in prison. I've been leading people to Jesus, but I have not forgotten you. And I'm just amazed that God is a friend of sinners. Signed, David Berkowitz, son of Sam. For those of you too young to remember this name, he was a serial killer who began his series of shootings in New York City in the summer of 1976. He randomly killed at least six people, wounded many others, and managed to escape authorities and be on the loose for quite a period of time, terrifying the city. He'd also been a member of the murderous satanic cult, though, and he's currently serving six life sentences consecutively. But somehow, through it all, not only did the authorities found him, but God found him. And he accepted Jesus and he accepted the good news because here's one thing we can say is true. No one is off of God's radar. I said no one is off of God's radar. Doesn't matter if you're the son of Sam. It doesn't matter if you're King Ahab. It doesn't matter if you're the best church person sitting in the pews today. With God, all things are possible. No one's off God's radar. The second thing to remember is that grace and humility go together. We read it earlier, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But he is saying, pack up your stuff, pack up your credentials, and come to God saying, you're what I need. You're the one I need, and you're the only one I want. I wish there were a gentler way to say this to you this morning, but it's the truth. Pride. Is what keeps us away from God. Whether it's pride in your own wicked ways, proud of all the bad stuff you've done, how what a great bad boy you've been, or whether it's pride in your own religious ways and how good you have been and how you've been the rule keeper, I have to tell you the truth. Pride pushes God away. There's no other way to say it Pride will stop you from raising your hand at an altar call and saying, you know what, I need God more than I need anything. Pride will do that, and it pushes God away. It's pride, church, that keeps us from responding in worship. Pride that when you walk in here, that you have any demeanor other than saying, Lord, you're the almighty, omnipotent, sovereign Lord, and I worship you with everything I have. Because it doesn't matter about your cool, doesn't matter about your vibe, all you have to do is pack that up, come with humility before the Lord, and get rid of the pride. 
That's good, Dan. That's really good. They don't like it, but it's good. And church, yes, you, Bethesda, what is it that keeps us from lifting our hands? It keeps us from having those spontaneous moments when we get so overwhelmed with the awesomeness of God and what he has done and all of our credentials and all of our cool and all of our stuff just melts away because we don't care about anything else but him. What is it that stops us from lifting our hands and lifting our voice and be ready to sing, whether you sing or not, it doesn't matter, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord and lift your voice and declare his greatness and that in that moment there is nothing more important than exalting him. Nothing. It's pride that stops us from that church. I wish there were a prettier way of saying it, but it's pride that stops us. What is it that keeps us from falling on our knees or falling prostrate, prostrate before the Lord in holy reverence of who he is? It's pride. And here's what i got to tell you. It's time to pack it up. It's time to pack it up. Pack up your credentials. Pack up your cool. Pack up your reputation for being all together. Pack it up because it means absolutely nothing. It's time to pack it up. I was reading a story about Muhammad Ali in an article when he was at the height of his career. You all know he was a heavyweight champion of the world. He got on a Delta Airlines flight and he wouldn't buckle his seatbelt. And the flight attendant approached him and said, Sir, you've got to buckle your seatbelt or we can't go. And Ali looked at the flight attendant and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked right back at him and said, and Superman didn't need no plane either. <laughs> Pack it up! Your credentials will only take you so far, sir, ma'am, heavyweight champion of the world, pastor, reverend. We are all sinners saved by grace. And your credentials, whatever they are, they will only take you so far. And when you hit the roadblock and you have to humble yourself and simply say, God, I need you, and all that matters is your cross. All that matters is the work that you have accomplished on, on my behalf. Here's what we know. The supreme sovereign God of the universe is sitting on this throne in heaven just listening for that cry of humility. He's got his ear cupped this morning. He's saying, what's that I hear? What is that I hear? Knowing full well Everything that you've ever done, knowing full well every intention of your heart, knowing every, full well every motivation of your heart, knowing exactly what was in your mind and why you did it without holding one grudge against you or the wickedness of your heart. He says, what's that I hear? What's that I hear? Is that humility I hear coming from him? Is that a broken and contrite heart? Is she speaking to me with every bit of cynicism gone? Is that, has that arrogant spirit been washed away? Is he setting, his side, setting aside his pride? Is that what I hear? What's that I hear? And when he hears that sound, when he hears that cry from your heart, he says this, then let me turn it around for them. Let me turn it around because they've packed it all up and I'm going to turn it around. Church, that is amazing grace. I said that is amazing grace. I said that is amazing grace. Stand to your feet with me this morning. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, be careful and be not proud 
of race, face, or place. It's all by grace. Take no pride in the color of your skin, whatever it is, or how good-looking you are, or any status that you have attained. It all means nothing. The only thing we can boast about, church, is grace. Could we just take a moment and lift our hands and say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Come on, everyone in this house, whether you've ever done it before or not, just lift your hands. Lord, it's all by your amazing grace. Come on, open your mouth and speak out to Jesus today. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Prayer team, if you want to come for just a moment. Some may be asking, could God save me after all I've done? Yes, I'm here to tell you it's amazing grace. He can change it all for you in a moment. All he's listening for from the throne of heaven today is a cry of humility. Someone who says, I'm ready to pack it all up. I'm ready to put it all away. I'll pack it all up. Anybody this morning who was ready to say, you know what, Pastor, this is registered with me. I have hit the point of knowing that it's either God or nothing in my life. I've got to fall on my face before him. And I would need God to turn things around for me today. Just slip out from where you are right now and come to one of these fine folks who will pray for you. Just like you, they are sinners saved by grace. Just like you, they are people who are dealing with life stuff and life's problems. But they're willing to pray with you. Anoint you with oil. If that's true for you today, just slip out from where you are right now. If you're in the balcony, there are people standing back by the windows that would pray with you today. And they'd be glad to lead you uh, to a knowledge of Jesus Christ or pray a word of encouragement over you, whatever it is that you have need of. But before we go this morning, I want us to sing about this amazing grace.